Hi losers! Welcome back to Political Theory. Did you miss us? Episode 3. Episode 3. We're really tracking through them. So much to talk about. Um, <laughs> we've actually published episode 1 now, so I hope yeah. you all liked it. Thank you very much to um, at least the five of my friends who got in touch to say that they enjoyed it. Thanks to all two of my friends. <laughs> That said, they might listen. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are going to talk about anti-vaxxer ideology, because we both bumped into um, the vigil for the voiceless last Saturday. (laughs) Accidentally both in, like, separate locations in London got caught up in the protests. Yeah. (laughs) On the tour. Well, accidentally. I was there. No, joking. (laughs) On the 20th of March, like I said, it was called the Vigil for the Voiceless, which was uh, kind of self-styling itself of the Vigil the week before for Sarah Everard, which happened in Clapham. And we both want to talk about what anti-vaccine is as an ideology, Um, the kind of difference between anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, anti-mask, because they've all been lumped into one. And then we want to talk a little bit about those links that the protests made to Sarah Everard and to feminism generally. And then round up with a little spice on the (laughs) police, crime, courts and sentencing bill, which is currently going through (laughs) um, our parliament. Bring on the authoritarian state. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, bring on the wall! (laughs) We're just like crashing into <laughs> like Anton Dubeck in Lycra trying to fit himself through the hole. Oh my god, Boris Johnson could be the presenter. He'd look awful. Yeah, he truly would. He doesn't photograph well. He doesn't do anything well. I really don't restrict our civil liberties. I don't think countries should have leaders that don't photograph well. <laughs> you are literally so obsessed with beauty and mm. I love it. Sorry, Naomi Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Beauty myth. More like... The beauty truth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a beauty truther. (laughs) Anyway, let's get on to anti-vaccine. Because we've actually got so much to speak about about this. Okay. So, we actually did our research, guys. And, um... Okay, actually, no. Let's start with, like, our experiences of the protest. Because we both bumped into it. So, you were in Hyde Park... Yeah, I was eating pasta with my friend Katie in Hyde Park and then we were walking back to the tube station to go home um, and there was a sudden like outpouring of people and they were shouting at us because we we put our masks on to get on the tube to go down the steps in Hyde Park Corner yeah. and they were yelling things like, I'm trying to think exactly what it was now, <laughs> things things like, don't be a clone and I was like, well... I'm not, like, I take your point, but that isn't a relevant phrase to use. <laughs> Don't be a clone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say it was from my, maybe this isn't a relevant thing to mention. You can edit this out if you Go like ahead. It was entirely white from my perception. And there yeah. were thousands of people. Um, lots of signs. One in particular, which we'll come back to, that really struck me that I actually texted Pip about, said, my body, my choice. Mm. Which is heavily implicated in the reproductive freedom movement of the feminist agenda so we're going to talk about that later I think yeah yeah we're going to talk about my body mind yeah that was my like big 
take away from it. I, you know, I wasn't like harassed, just kind of yelled at for putting my mask on. And there were loads of people. There were yeah. loads. So like, I actually bumped into it. Like, as in I had to go the opposite direction to it for quite a while to get home because I was cycling home along the river. It's really idyllic, actually, because um, I don't cycle that much in London because I'm so scared and I finally got over it. <laughs> cycling back along the river and I was thinking how beautiful it was and how lucky I am to live in London and I bumped into the protest and I was like oh my god like-minded people (laughs) (laughs) um no but I had to like get off my bike and I saw the crowd from far away and I was Mm. like oh brilliant people standing in the cycle lane I was like oh no (laughs) this is more than the cycle lane so yeah I had to I I was walking along the side the protest for quite well but yeah I have a I had a lot of thoughts. Got me. It got me really thinking, actually, because okay. So I did notice like maybe one or two people of color among thousands, but yeah, it's, it's all white. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was a. It wasn't all gammon. No, for sure. Lots of young women. Young women. Loads of young women. Loads of like families with kids. One thing that really got me thinking and got me on the vibe to do this podcast was that. The protest really smelled. Like, it smelled yeah. really bad. Yeah. And um, it basically got me thinking about this whole idea of, like, public health and hygiene being tied into kind of liberal ideology. Yeah. And how, you know, the the reason that we get up and that we shower and that we clean and da-da-da is so that we can go work in office jobs and be productive. And how hygiene is so tied to productivity. And how all of these people kind of lie outside that that mainstream ideology. But hygiene is so much a part of it that we can't even see that it's ideological. It seems like an absolute no-brainer. And it got me thinking about how much we're limited or we can't we can't understand these ideologies because we can't even understand that what we believe is also ideological, is we, what it got me thinking. We can't step outside of the ideology in order to evaluate it because we're so ingrained within it. Exactly. And like the the stop gap reaction when you come across that smell because honestly i'm not i'm not trying to be rude like it was the worst smelling protest i think that i have ever smelled yeah no it was disgusting um you like smell of weed and booze and like bo and the first thing that you would think it was like oh disgusting and then i was like no i need to challenge this idea and i think it's so easy because hygiene is so ingrained to just completely dismiss them as kind of like we see it all the time people like this being dismissed as untouchables and their politics being dismissed as not politics as like a lack of politics and a lack of education and i think that's really dangerous to dismiss thousands of people based on that so that's why i wanted to do this podcast yeah where i'm coming from i can very much concur with what you're saying about it being an ideology um i've had lectures in public health um during my course at Harvard and I'm actually starting a master's in global health Mm. next year this coming academic year and we've learned a lot about how health the concept of public health like didn't fully exist really as a political ideology you've got things like the plagues where the like the word quarantine comes Mm. from the black death doesn't it because houses were boarded up for 40 days I think and that's the Italian quarantina I think is Italian for 40 So there's been a history of political bodies intervening in people's lives during times of health crisis. I'm not saying that's a a modernist invention, 
but the concept that someone else's health impacts you politically and you being an individual that forms a greater public that is like a political public that has a duty Mm. to other people is really new things like there were campaigns in you know like Victorian times to get people to wash their hands and things like that and while it was kind of biologically I suppose maybe that's not the right word medically sound in terms of germ theory becoming prevalent and like accepted and provable there there was a very liberal notion of like a good citizen is a clean citizen Mm. and citizen is inherently political Mm. so it's also tied up with the colonialism which was if you were going to be like a good arm of the state you would go and spread hygiene Mm. and hygiene in its very specific form of consuming health-based products Mm. created with the vision of a particular consumer in mind so it's like the fusion of the consumer and the citizen yeah in service of an imagined public whose health depends on you yeah and that if you transgress that you are doing wrong by other people yeah so like public health and hygiene are both ideal like they've they form part of this state ideology because only the state can really ensure them on a kind of mass level um and I've got a quote here from Dipesh Chakrabarti and it's about, it's actually about India um, and kind of colonial views of Indians and how all the colonists and actually the nationalists as well would view Indians as dirty and kind of disgusting because they didn't fit into like their vision of how people should live. When we talk about India being dirty, we would say that that is the language of modernity, of civic consciousness and public health, of even certain ideas of beauty related to the management of public space and interests, an order of aesthetics from which the ideals of public health and hygiene cannot be separated. And I think it's it's basically if you don't conform to society's vision of public health and of hygiene, then you're kind of immediately outside it. I mean, we see... And sometimes this is treated with... Um, the attention that it deserves like with homelessness we see how there are charities which will give clothes to homeless people and cut their hair and wash them because they understand that the only way that they can get a job is if they do all of these things but that's not really challenging the idea that like how necessary is hygiene to how necessary should hygiene be and should conforming to a quite narrow idea of public health be to be included as like a political citizen the idea that cleanliness is next to godliness um and that like to be godly is to be a good citizen yeah because there's no when that phrase came about in the 17th century there's no like valid atheism Mm. to be a good citizen was to be a god-fearing christian and to be a clean one and the Mm. two were not separable yeah. And we're obviously not saying it's bad to be clean, but it's not politically neutral to encourage people to behave in a certain way. Yeah, I think that basically to say that because some people don't conform to society's view of what health is, which is quite a narrow view, that they shouldn't be included in politics or within like they they still have valid political beliefs is essentially what I'm saying and so many people so I actually posted a video of the protest on my Instagram which was basically kind of 
taking the piss of the fact that I had been um, cycling along thinking how idyllic my life was and then I'd bumped into this protest and it was taking the piss out of that and everyone assumed that I was saying that they shouldn't have a right to protest because I think that is like the assumption that you think that people like me would have and it really isn't like I completely agree in everyone's right to protest that's why I'm like annoyed about the police crime <laughs> called Zendonville which we'll get to I think it's really interesting how the movement away from conventional modernist hygienic practices is one very imbricated with privilege now. It's things like white vegans doing no shampoo mm. and um, people free bleeding, you know, not wearing period products, yeah. feminine hygiene products. Well, I hate the phrase feminine hygiene, mm. menstrual products and people um, foregoing deodorant. Yeah. And it's it's a very... It's not that I'm saying they shouldn't be doing that, but more that I think it's, I think this crops up a lot when a particular ideological moment becomes normalised through people's behaviours and then the ones that are able to dissent while still remaining political citizens in the eyes of the majority are the ones who are very privileged. Yeah, which is why, like, we'll get onto this when we talk about the feminism thing, but it's why I think it's interesting, these comparisons between, like, the Sarah Everard vigil and this... Um, protest this protest was kind of immediately seen as like wrong and everyone was saying that these people are terrible and disgusting they should never been out there actually I don't see the difference in you going to a vigil with thousands of people you're doing a march with thousands of people in terms of covid you're both refuting the idea that you know we should be in a lockdown and that protest do do you know what I mean yeah it's the fundamental point that what you have to say is more important than the risk yeah exactly um and there's other comparisons that we'll we'll get into, but I think that part of it comes from the fact that um, people that attend Sarah Everard vigils and are generally what, like white middle class women who are of the type that you're saying who have the privilege to be able to express those kind of ideas and not be called like immediately racists or bigots or, or just stupid, yeah, or stupid, um, yeah. So I completely agree. It's like being unclean is now the privilege of the, the privileged. Yeah, it's like being unclean in the right way. <laughs> being unclean and included is the privilege of the privileged. Absolutely. And like, if anyone else is unclean, that's it, you're out. Yeah. Like My dad always used to say um, that whatever I looked for in a boyfriend, he wouldn't mind as long as they had clean fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> Fair though. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's... It, if you're kind of being regarded as unclean and public health is so... T- this is why I'm getting, like, really hinging on the clean point because public health is so tied to being clean. I think we automatically assume that people who... We just associate cleanliness with being vaccinated and being, like, free of disease. And part of those associations are... They're, n- they're no one's fault. They're just in the air. But that does mean that we naturally attribute a level of being unclean to people that are anti-vaccine absolutely out of this like anti-mask anti-vaxxer anti-lockdown i am anti-lockdown i would say um not in the sense i would go to a protest but i don't necessarily follow lockdown about 99 percent of the time and like have always been very unsure that this is the best way to go about handling covid always um i'm not anti-masker in the sense that i wear a mask but i do see them as completely ineffectual partially partly because 
I have a reusable mask which I wash about once a month and like there's absolutely no way that that do- thing is doing me any good and like I know I'm not anti-vaxxer duh because that's just you know I've been raised with vaccines and I'm absolutely fine and I believe the science crucially yeah. but I am less convinced of the science behind anti-mask and anti-lockdown and it's interesting because the three get lumped together as if they're all the same and they're they're really not like lockdown is a very political issue an economic issue whereas being anti-vaxxer to me is a more kind of personal i don't know what do you think i think that anti-vax is a more coherent body of thought than anti-mask and anti-lockdown because they are situation specific yeah they're they're inherently reactionary yeah so to be anti-vax is not inherently to be anti-mask or anti-lockdown because anti-vax ideology and belief often derives from scientific claims mm-hmm. i'm hesitant to call it full science but then i acknowledge that the reason i'm hesitant to call it full science is because i have been taught that vaccinations are correct science and mm-hmm. i do believe that yeah. Like, I believe they are, but I can also acknowledge that my belief comes from what I've been taught. Yeah. And anti-vaccination ideology and, and beliefs and, like, community, if we can call it community, I don't know if they call themselves community, are grounded in a dispute of science and a putting forward of an alternative kind of science. Mm. So I don't think it's as inherently reactionary because they have another vision. Yeah, and anti-vaxxer is like, like you can be an anti-vaxxer in completely normal health situations. Like anti-vaxxers yeah. don't just believe in anti-this vaccination. They tend to believe in anti-most vaccinations. And I am convinced that most vaccina- vaccinations are completely fine. Yeah. And I'm convinced that this vaccination is probably fine. Like, I don't have any issues with it. I think it's odds that it managed to get through testing so quickly given what we know about testing yeah but i'm i'm gonna have it that's yeah i'm totally gonna have worse it. things have gone in my body than yeah ever. well that's fundamentally the point is like <laughs> i've swallowed a penny oh not deliberately as a child <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm well known for being extremely unhygienic <laughs> <laughs> but i i just don't feel worried yeah about it no i trust my own health if that makes sense yeah so we engaged with an anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, anti-lockdown. I always forget the last one. The triple. The triple. The triple threat. We engaged with the triple threat, <laughs> friend of the pod, um, and asked them to like run us through some of her points. Um, what did you think? I appreciated how independently she'd clearly worked through all the issues. Yeah. And had really strong rebuttals yeah to a lot of things which she had sat down and i mean she put so much more work into it than we asked her to oh my god like massively appreciate it yeah thanks friend (laughs) (laughs) um i thought it was incredibly well researched i didn't i don't i mean i don't necessarily agree but it goes it's a really powerful the document she's put together for us is a really powerful contradiction to the claims that anti-vax ideology is born of ignorance because she's more well researched on the opposite side than anyone I know is part like apart from like doctors but yeah. any kind of lay person she's far more well researched on the opposing side than any lay person is on the 
on the side of vaccination like she's better researched on the alternatives than i am on my stance yeah so i would say that the doc kind of maybe we should even like share it on the patreon yeah, if she's ask, yeah. um so that people can kind of get an idea of like what the vision behind it is i'd say you could divide it up into like scientific points and political points yeah and i am completely there on all the political points aka the fact that like um millions has been spent billions has been spent on test and trace all of those hospitals were created... 500 million, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 500 million that don't seem to be used. One rule for the rich, another for the poor, or rather, like, one rule for the Tory elite, yeah. and another rule for the rest of us. Yeah, it's not even straightforward classism. It's, like, Politburo yeah. hoarding of power. Exactly. Boris's emergency measures that he's currently still extending... Um, the general acceleration of authoritarian measures that has been done in the name of health and I assume will probably not be reversed. Like data, for example, that that app is a brilliant example. Um, the corruption of the government saying that we should clap for the NHS and then not giving the NHS any extra funding. That, the clap for the NHS is, it like boils my blood. Mm. So I obviously did it. <laughs> when yeah. I was locking down with my parents at home and it's so easy to get caught up in the collectivity and the positivity of it but I it's fun to go out on the street yeah. and bang a, a bang a pot because no, I, I like in our in our <laughs> village yeah, there are plenty of people who work for the NHS and yeah. I like heard from them they were like it's so lovely because you feel appreciated mm. but I my parents are like very left-wing and the thing that we kind of always said is like if you voted conservative and you're clapping for the nhs like what are you playing at yeah and also i know that everyone's made this point and this is not new but this was always my problem with captain tom r.i.p captain tom um they share a birthday yeah let's say that (laughs) one of us one of us got a little more appreciation than the other in 2020 (laughs) captain tom look at you (laughs) you also stole my anniversary anyway do you think they'll put a giant drone like yes, display of you like, <laughs> oh right <New> year. <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> to say that i've taken over <laughs> captain tom captain Pitt. <laughs> anyway like when captain tom was doing his rounds and um, and everyone was like whoa let's give money to captain tom like i know that it's been said but it's not a charity it's, it's a dystopian. public service it's disgusting to treat it like a charity it, it's it, it's back to totally. Victorian ages. It's like back to the time Bernardo's when, home, yeah, right? Yeah, back when like hospitals in medieval France were like funded by the church. This is insane. And this churches not... funded by the generosity of their clergy. Yeah, exactly. Like I find it disgusting that the government did. So I'm yeah. I'm fully with her on all the political points. Where I am less with her is the scientific claims. Yeah, me too. But I also am very aware so um like Chomsky has spoken about this before although I don't think that this is a good example but like people who are and you and me are both very much this like your pet you've got a mum who's a teacher both my parents are in education and it's like people who are like educated especially in the professions are the most likely to have faith in establishment narratives yes because they rely on those narratives for their worldview. And like, yeah. I have always been set up with a very firm belief that like science is science is science. And actually looking throughout history, and this is what's worrying about now is that so many times 
horrible things have been done in the name of science. I mean, have you heard of the Tuskegee syphilis study? No. It's, I mean, it like, I don't even have words for how disgusting it is, but it was basically a study um, funded at least partially by the American government, and I believe it was in the 30s, and extended into the 70s, so they did, like, constant monitoring of it. Mm. And it was funded by the CDC, which is the Centre for Disease Control, yeah. and the American Dr. Public Fauci Health Service. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going we to get on to Dr Fauci. Fauci. Jesus. And the purpose of the study was basically to see how syphilis progresses. Mm. And they told they recruited african-american men i think there were a couple of women but the it was almost entirely men mm. they recruited them they did this study in tuskegee as an area that was like a really poor segregated black area so they knew they could get people who would come in and they told them they were treating them and they just weren't disgusting just so they could see what, what happened what happened yeah science is not and that let me rephrase that went up to 1972. Mm. Our parents were teenagers, mine were, mm. when this was happening. This is not, this is not like ancient dissection of slaves. Um, the problem, like with science, it's viewed with this reli- religiosity almost, like this internal faith in like, oh, it's science. And actually science is not, if you have an ideal condition in, lo- in a lab and you can test things out, then yeah, that's science. This whole lockdown is not, science there's no there's no control population there's no other uk where we're not doing lockdown to check that lockdown works Mm. um there's no other uk where we're not wearing masks to see the effect of that there's very little like scientific actually about these kind of mass political programs i don't think i think there's it makes me think of the difference between you've got like foucauldian biopolitics and then Achille Mbembe talks about necropolitics Mm. with biopolitics being like the ultimate instrument that the state can level against you Mm. is death Mm. and then necropolitics being the ultimate exclusion from citizenship is being allowed to die yeah so it's like active this idea versus of passive. like let to die yeah, yeah yeah and this is one of the other issues is that if anyone questions lockdown it's like oh what do you want to do let people die um no of course i don't want to let people die but the the idea this is also contained within the save lives stay at home save lives the idea that i by going out could kill people is kind of you know it's a disease that's that's killing them it's not me that's killing them and i do understand the notion that i am spreading it but it's like this notion that (laughs) that we can stop death anyway like no one can stop death I think that essentially the government is trying to control something which is inherently incontrollable. But then I, I'm i actually kind of pro-lockdown, not in the way it's been done by the government, but if I were in government, like, literally, what do you do? But, like, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, this is a question of, like, how much how much can one do in this circumstance? Ivan Illich speaks about this in... Um, so he's got two books. What's it? What are they called? <laughs> one of them's called Medical Nemesis. That's the second one, and mm-hmm. the other one is da, 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 da. Tools for Conviviality. And then Tools for Conviviality is the first one where he starts to kind of argue that there have been two watersheds in medicine. The first one is when we have like all of these medical innovations, which are incredible for humanity and which save 
like I guess we're talking about like millions of lives anesthetic yeah yeah exactly and then the second one is this point where you surpass you begin to surpass what can be done and what can be improved with medicine and it starts to become harmful and then he develops this idea further in medical nemesis where he basically starts to detect the fact that we have stopped being seen as people and start being seen as populations and that a lot of this has to do with public health so basically the reason that this is worrying or that medicine can become counterproductive so within that system you're losing something more which is the idea that that death is something which we should all consistently fight against that death can be put off forever that pain is terrible he says um he believes that much of humanity and he was writing this like i don't know the 80s or something (laughs) he believes that much of humanity is no longer willing to bear its rebellious torn and disoriented flesh and has instead traded it traded its art of suffering and its art of dying for a few years of life expectancy and the comforts of life and an artificial creation well that makes me think of the transition from the augustinian concept of death which is the moment the soul leaves the body Mm. because in the old 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 days there was no possibility of not physically dying yeah you know like you were going to physically die and it would be absolute and there would be nothing you could do like you could treat an illness you know you could put a put a pulse on a sore but you were going to die so all the debate was theological and it was like does the soul physically leave the body does the soul stay in until we give it the last rites like Mm -hmm. all this kind of theological debate And then you move to a modern conception of death. And it's so interesting. We find it harder and harder to define death Mm. because we can't rely on cardiovascular death anymore Mm. because we have the means to keep that going. Mm. So you say it's the moment the heart stops or you could put someone on a heart monitor and 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 like a ventilator and stuff. You could keep them going forever. Yeah. So we say it's the moment the brain stops. But what if you have one residual brainwave that indicates that they might not be totally dead? Mm. We It's a really interesting medical dilemma and it coincides with the rise of organ donation mm. because we have to have a really clear way to say if someone's dead or not. Because if you harvest organs from someone who might... in Like, there's a, a way in America, there's this girl who is um, federally dead mm. and state-level alive. They moved to California because the qualification of death is different. Oh my God, that's insane. It's to do with her brainwaves. That's crazy. Yeah. So she, she's I she's mean, got a death certificate from like nine years ago and she's still alive on a heart monitor. That's insane. Yeah. Why? But like, why are we doing that? Like, why is she alive? Like... Because her parents value her life. See, this is what... This is literally the point. It's like... And this is the point about lockdown. There has never been a conversation and I'm not saying that I wouldn't have any form of lockdown that's not what i'm saying but there has never been a conversation about whether saving lives should always be our number one priority because like the (laughs) the other the crux of the matter is is that while we're busy saving lives life is not being lived like and it's not just we the government tends to concentrate on just one thing which is how many deaths are we preventing how many deaths what is our death rate how many people are dying and it's like okay you also have an impending mental health crisis you have a complete collapse of the economy we have been arguing in england or the uk for the last however many years about whether there should be a second referendum because brexit which will destroy our lives for the next 10 years was and was democratically voted for we have been arguing about whether there should be another election. Where was, like, my choice in the fact that the next 20 years of 
of the world are going or definitely of the UK are going to be completely different from the world that I entered into in March 2020 and I'm not saying and I completely understand that saving lives is obviously like a noble pursuit but it's just that (laughs) this fixation on lives being the only thing that needs saving I don't know like what about like cultural life or what about but then my economic life or what about my like pro lockdown response to that would be that institutions are populated so saving lives is to save culture but like saving (laughs) i don't i don't think that saving culture is that like but or economy what like anything i don't i I just don't i think that okay so basically i think that bureaucratic institutions are built to focus on measurable um quantifiable yeah quantifiable measures of success essentially and we see this you know death rates across the world are compared and that's the only thing that measures each country and you know the death rate is the only thing that we care about and i'm not saying that i like you know if it was um displayed up as like a choice among many it may turn out that the lockdown was the only choice but i think actually and this is like something that we can see in this document some of the frustration is that no one's had choice that this has been presented as a scientific issue and therefore you all have to stay at home and there's no other option i'm sure if the option was put in front of people okay this many people will die if you don't do the lockdown maybe it would be different i don't know i don't think people would choose to do it but like (laughs) if if the majority of people won't choose to do it i i just don't this is going to make me sound really dangerous and fascist. I just don't think people people just don't know what's good for them. Or like the it's so hard to forego short-term gratification for seriously long-term. I'm talking like a year and a half mm. of delayed gratification of like a normal life. Like I wouldn't trust but myself I, to do it, so I appreciate there be I appreciate being told what to do essentially. Yeah, okay. So, like, also, this is another thing, is I think some people are naturally compliant. This is not a bit... No, I'm like, fully Some people are naturally <laughs> compliant, and some people aren't. And I think it's, like, a lot of this anti-lockdown impulse comes from people that aren't naturally compliant. Yeah, people I that, am naturally and compliant. And, like I, I said, this links back to the stuff earlier about how um, you're more likely to believe in an establishment narrative if you're educated, because you rely more on that establishment. Chomsky actually makes the point in si- in the 60s that if you um, like shackle students with mountains of debt, then they're also going to lose all of their um, revolutionary potential because they can't stand outside the system. Because, Such a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and they can't stand outside the system because they have to all get jobs at consultancies and fucking KPMG. And this is true, though. Like, if you're... If you have no... If you have no skin in the ge- in the game, if you don't like the government, you're naturally oppo- opposed to bureaucracy. It's n- done nothing for you. You don't owe it your income. You don't owe it your job. And in fact, you've hated it and it's treated you like shit for years. Why would you give a fuck about its rules and about its narrative that it is the one that can save us from this disease? Because I, I don't see how well, you I would. Think, I think diseases are fundamentally ungovernable. Yeah. So, but that is why the democratic process gets rescinded because the current structures of governance that we have are inadequate. But, like, if a disease is fundamentally ungovernable, why try, like... Because people are governable and people are the vectors of the disease. 
so you like you patch up the hole with a you know what's the phrase it's like sticking a plaster on a crack in the wall or something but yeah. it's better than nothing yeah i suppose i don't know i don't know if i like i think essentially that the government's job in all of this has been to provide a veneer of order to a situation of constant chaos that has like absolutely no control over but also chaos amongst government not just amongst the populace yeah yeah like the chaos of their decision making oh my god it's been it's been insane it's bonkers and the and the chaos that they can't even stick to their own rules like i don't even think that it's necessarily just a matter of privilege as such i think that it's just that they've enforced rules that actually very few people could stick to i mean like they're just a wildly incompetent cabinet yeah but that's my (laughs) anti-conservative yeah stance fuck boris (laughs) fuck him although Um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the anti-mask aspect quickly because i i think the anti-mask thing is interesting um it's the one i i mean like i am pro lockdown pro vax pro mask not in a huge are you like pro i'm very i'm i'm fully i'm pro vaccine Oh yeah, I'm pro-vaccine. Actively pro-vaccine. I'm compliant with lockdown. And I don't see the point of being anti-mask because it's yeah. so, like, cut your losses. Okay, so like, this is my thing with the masks. I don't believe that it works, but like, I think I look cute in it. You do have nice ones. <laughs> I have like, really nice masks and I have really nice eyes and it really brings out my eyes. Um, I might carry on wearing it afterwards. Um, it just like our, our mutual it, friend used to work in a coffee shop and people would come in every day and say god I'm so sorry that you baristas have to wear those things and she would be like it's a piece of cloth yeah like, don't feel sorry for me I don't have a huge issue with it like I don't I just don't care I have missed the occasional train because I've forgotten oh really yeah the thing that annoys me is that when you're on the northern line you can't hear what the person next to you is saying because the northern line's so loud and you can't read lips anymore yeah the lip the lack of lip reading is difficult which leads me on to the thing that i do have an issue with which is about um accommodating for people with disabilities lip reading like deaf people oh yeah i just don't know how they're getting about because like they could be exempt but how do they know what's what other people are saying yeah that's a huge accessibility issue i I don't know what the solution is but i just think there's been no discourse about it yeah there are others like there are there are surely other disabilities that must be hampered by the mark yeah um autistic people i was reading was saying they have like huge sensory overload yeah and find it really difficult so the mask wearing thing is interesting because um well-known gay hater dr fauci um said there's a video of him on the on the march of that march the 8th of march 2020 and obviously this is quite early on but he said there's no reason to be walking around with a mask when you're in the middle of an outbreak wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better and it might even block a droplet but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think it is and often there are unintended consequences people keep fiddling with a mask and they keep touching their face said that on 8th of March about a month later the CDC was saying like you have to wear a mask everyone has to wear a mask and there was no acknowledgement of the fact that that had been previously said there was and a, then sorry sorry no, no no I was gonna say it's not the same but I remember talking to my parents about this when I was um living back at home and they were saying the government won't tell us to wear masks until they can provide them 
or until do you remember there was that massive ppe shortage mm-hmm. and no you couldn't buy masks for love nor money yeah yeah and it just goes to show how political and ideological public health is again yeah because they they might i think they really believe masks work i don't think it's quite the same like the conservative government think they work but they weren't going to tell us to wear them because they could be immediate like the immediate political criticism is okay give us them then Mm. and they couldn't do it so they had to wait until the shortage was over and then be like oh and you have to wear them it shows you that none of these things are completely all of them are political they're all tied into policy and resources they're not self-evident yeah they're about resources they're about resource distribution I always see like these infographics which say if you take your mask on and off in public then you're and I see people like spraying their mask I don't do any of those things I never have done and like I never will because I can't be asked sorry like I also rarely wash my hands um you are disgusting uh but like that's not because I'm an anti-mask I just I don't believe that the masks do anything but I also think but I think it's like like i said just cut your loss like yeah exactly this is i'm also naturally fairly compliant probably slightly less compliant than than you you're definitely less compliant than me um i'll do anything for an easy life there's a little bit of revolutionary blood in there (laughs) daddy (laughs) um but like i'm compliant enough to not it's not even compliant i just can't be asked with the ag of like going into a shop this is okay this is actually the thing that i understand the least about anti-maskers specifically it's like do you not get bored of like going into a shop and then being told you can't come in here yeah because you're not wearing a mask and then like my this is a genuine question my mum ring in sorry yeah (laughs) my mum is going to the pub with her friend when it opens and another one of their friends and another one of their friends has said she's not going anywhere that requires her to wear a mask and they were like okay that's everywhere then like we would love to see you like who are you like what who is going to listen to your point mm. you know it's like when i used to work in um in a restaurant and people would say you've lost my lost my business mm. you'd be like i don't care like <laughs> do you think i care that mm. you're not going to come back mm. it's the same thing of of saying well I- i'm not coming in here because you require a mask i guarantee you all the service people are just going okay yeah like fuck off i don't want you to your point is not made or well received (laughs) yeah i mean like service people hate their customers yes fully if you this is what people don't understand number one about service people as someone who has worked in a supermarket and several restaurants and cafes like we hate you we hate the customers (laughs) so don't make us hate you more yeah but I just think this, like, vilification of people that don't believe in a flimsy bit of fabric is kind of insane. Like, yeah, whatever, I would just wear it because I can't be asked. but they're also not villains for doing, for not wearing it. I don't know. What? I, I, I am of the opinion, like, oh, just put it on. But then... I don't think they're villains, but they're not the freedom crusaders they think they are. No, it's not... Okay, here's the thing, is that turning oh my god okay point turning anti-masks into such a big issue then makes like the people that are anti-masker believe that that is the crusade that Mm -hmm. they're fighting and it's not like for me being an anti-masker is actually about like the lack of politics involved but like you can turn that whole issue into an ideology like anti-mask can only be an ideology if the opposite is like if you're vilified for doing it it right. can only then be transformed into something insane if it's and made like, into a subject position exactly yeah i take your point um 
the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion but allow very lively debate within that spectrum even encourage the more critical and dissident views that gives people the sense that there's three thing free thinking going on while all the presuppositions of the system are reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate noam chomsky that is so good thank you but yeah like essentially we have limited public debate to this position to this point where like we're talking about should a person go into a shop somebody going into a shop without a mark has suddenly become this symbol of freedom and it's like no we're all being oppressed and suppressed by this horrible government so i think there's a fundamental ideological root to the idea that you are responsible for my health yeah and that if you give me something you have done so deliberately and with ill intent and malice because we can't assign morality to a pathogen so we assign it to the other people yeah because someone has to be the victim and someone has to be the perpetrator and this pathogen is like i don't understand why people are shocked that there are hysterical reactions because this pathogen is the ultimate the ultimate enemy within like this is an invisible thing which surrounds us at all times and we've we're told like constantly by the media and constantly by the government that like we could be killed by it at any moment and then you blame people for acting crazy and trying to refute this like idea of the enemy within it's it's exhausting to think you're going to die all the time yeah and it's exhausting to live in a constant state of hysteria over something which i believe is more deadly than the flu but i don't believe is much more deadly than the flu honestly i don't feel qualified to give a scientific opinion yeah i'm i yeah i don't know like i'm this is this is i'm wary of making like scientific claims i'm wary of like where where does all this science get posted like i want to read it i want to read like this is i don't believe in anything that i read anymore no one does no no one does this is another part of the issue but that's that's just like modern society but how is anyone meant to have an opinion on anything when nothing is true? The only thing I believe is Paddington Bear's Twitter. Oh, that's cute. Does he have a tweet? Yeah. A tweet? A tweet? A tweet? A tweet? I thought of a really good tweet earlier. I'm going to tweet it later. Oh. Follow me on Twitter, everyone. Look forward to hearing it. It's called at Champagne Sket, I think. Nice. Oh, also subscribe to us on Patreon. Anyway. Oh, yeah. And Apple Podcasts, please. Yeah. And Spotify. Um, but talking politics brings us to yes Sarah Everard and the bill and the bill what do you want to talk about first let's talk about the bill yeah let's talk about the bill I I made the most notes on the bill okay so sorry every time we say it it makes me think of the bill the The tv show (laughs) I've never watched that I used to watch it with my neighbours so yeah the police court crime court and sentencing bill I think it's a great idea (laughs) I think it's really really great um talk me through your the notes that you've made like so where to start <laughs> my primary um fury comes from the powers it gives the home secretary to make decisions without going through political processes yeah mhm uh-huh cuz pretty patel is a fucking bitch uh, fucking bitch <laughs> is just uh, like <laughs> remarkable i don't even have the words for how scared i am of her did you see the clip of ex-home secretary Theresa May 
um, I can't believe that we're like relying on Theresa May talking about gender, like the Theresa May talking about um, no, free speech. Yeah, but oh also, my God. but also when she said, "I'm wary of how many powers we're giving to the Home Secretary," because although this Home Secretary may may be perfectly agreeable, who's to know what the future Home Secretaries are like? And I was like, just tell her, Theresa, just tell her she's a bitch. But also, like, let's not forget Theresa May as Home Secretary was responsible oh, was for the hostile environment, awful. which is like the most apparent yeah. decision. Wind rush was Theresa May yeah like I hate Theresa May so deeply she's been so like okay depoliticized and like memeified like we forget what she did as home secretary was disgusting but can I say that of and this is a damning damning statement of all the prime ministers of the 21st century Theresa May is probably the least morally bankrupt I am a huge simp for Tony Blair Iraq? Iraq war? Never Iraq heard war of it, war mate. <laughs> 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 Sorry to all our Iraqi followers. I will educate <laughs> Becca next time. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, the huge powers it gives to the Home Secretary. Without having disgusting. to, like, literally at her discretion. Also, it's such, like, a knock it's so narky it was like oh she can decide what's noisy yeah literally <laughs> so there's um she gets to decide appropriate impact and inappropriate levels of noise yeah so the, the impact thing is new so you used to be able to break, break up a protest based on like disturbance or disorder or violence and now you can do impact yeah which is like incredibly vague yeah, because like, you can be like, fuck oh, it's closed my tube station that I get on the way home, thus the police are going to come with riot yeah. shields. And, like, does it mean ideological impact? Does it mean, like, political... Does like, it mean achieving I- change? Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, a protest like, with a huge impact could... It could be, like, no public disturbance, but a huge impact in terms of opinion. Exactly. Like... You could now have a pro- the only protests which are now allowed are the ones are which are ones. quiet and ineffectual. But, which, to be fair, most protests are ineffectual yeah. anyway. But. but at the same time, it's also criminalised static and individual protests. Yeah. So not even those. No. And you can now go to prison for up to ten, ten years, years for defacing a statue. And as much as he is like the persona non grata at the moment, and I think he's just like a wet fish of a man. Keir Starmer made the point that <laughs> there was nothing about um, incorporating street harassment. Yeah. And, like, this this bill is more than just protest. It's about um, harsh punishments and, like, law and order. Yeah. And there was nothing on... And they they, they Tories keep being like, it's for gender equality. It's for gender equality, But there's yeah. nothing about street harassment. They're basically trying to push through this bill as, like, a general bill that was always part of the manifesto. And they're pushing it through loads of, loads of other things. I think it's so offensive to like um the feminist movement that is being pushed through as something that's for women when it's ostensibly against the sarah everard protest yeah, totally. or vigil um but yeah like anyone can now be arrested for an incredibly long and this isn't going to end like this is a permanent bill oh my god your contacts come out yeah no sorry it's really hurting I don't know oh do you want to oh it's okay i think it's, it's i think it's inside out no it's fine it just i think something fell in my eye upside just upside down Boy, you turn me inside. It's better. Good? Yeah, we're all good. Um, Upside down, you're turning me. But yeah, you've got to hate our democracy when Theresa May is the one sticking up for us. Well, also, like, where is Keir Starmer? Like, what is that wet wipe doing? Becoming conservative. He's blue on the inside. 
Oh, 100%. Well, he's a new neighbour, honey. He's Blair's. No, but he's not a sexy... You know, when I was younger, my parents... Oh, you like Blair because you fancy him. Yeah. But you have to agree he's morally bankrupt. He's despicable. You have to agree that he's more morally bankrupt than Theresa May. That's what I'm saying. So you had Blair, Iraq War. You had David Cameron did the referendum that he didn't want to do. God. (laughs) El Clasico. (laughs) Gordon. Do you remember when he sold the gold? And at school, everyone was like, Gordon Brown sold our gold. And I remember people being like, selling the gold. Why do we have gold? (laughs) Like, as children, that was a really hard concept to get your head around. What gold? He sold all the UK's gold um, (laughs) at a really terrible price. You know, there's like websites like webuyanygold.com. Literally, he was like, we sell all our gold. But yeah, like, obviously, this bill has been it it came out on interesting time because it came out after march the 20th which a lot of liberals had come up in had arms. said up in arms about and then but it also came after sarah and blm and so people are annoyed at the bill i'd say generally for those two factors and then kind of ignoring the fact that they were also wanting the other protests to be put down so it exposed a lot of hypocrisies mm, in people's totally. thinking but i think the reason it's got so much acceleration within the conservative government is because the big notable i don't want to say successful because that is like a whole other like how do you assess that but um acclaimed protests have been the one million people marching to remain mm. blm sarah everard thing was huge yeah they've all been like non-conservative protests but i I think that in the eyes of the state, all protests are the same, especially all protests under COVID. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think there would be less willingness to restrict freedom of speech because, like, the conservatives go on all the time about how the contemporary left are, you know, like, oh, you can't say anything wrong these days, and it's freedom of speech, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. But it's like that doesn't translate. But into the this. conservatives are like they're not just right wing right they're elitist and like this links into yeah. all of the stuff we were saying at the beginning in that the people the the people that go to the covid protests are like hillary clinton's what was it what is it she called them reprehensibles oh yeah like something like so. that Re- untouchables Re- uh, yeah reprehensible deplorable deplorable yeah. yeah like the tories view all these people as deplorables and like yeah they don't like the left-wingers either but they they're not fans of like that version of right wing that's think, not for the tories yeah. i think you're right actually because i don't think there's been much middle england conservative support for it no it's like the the conservative cabinet mm. right which you're right is elitist rather than exclusively right wing but i also think that you can't differentiate between right to po- protest based on what it is that you're protesting. Absolutely not. No, of course I, not. I don't think yeah, that at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, and like, this is what sometimes gets lost is that this bill, <laughs> this bill would achieve what some people wanted it to. Like, so when the protest went on, I saw and was privy to many women saying, oh, I bet the police did nothing. I bet the police didn't even intervene. And, like, some of that comes from a correct impulse of, like, it's unfair that the police intervene. But also, it's kind of like the police shouldn't intervene, particularly in any protest. Mm-hmm. Particularly not, from my observation of that protest, it was fairly non-violent. Yeah, fully. Um, both of those protests were about state power, completely. Like well, this- I think the key thing that this bill does is accumulate power away from the democratic decision-making and into fundamentally conservative institutions i.e the home secretary the police 
things that like it's not the populace anymore yeah and i would argue that covid has done similar things we've seen yeah like in the name of health and in the name of science but like this is done this is also being done partially in the name of health and science because it's being done to stop protests which are happening under covid it will continue after that but i don't think you could have pushed through this bill i don't think you could have pushed this through this bill after the eu remain protest for example yeah. i don't think there was it was necessarily on I the cards the impetus. but now protests have been seen as dangerous because of the impact that they have on public health yeah i'd agree with you on that one um should we let's talk about, talk about yeah my body my choice let's talk about my body my choice so you have you came across the sign i didn't see it yeah so. so it really threw me actually i saw a protester um during the hyde park protest the anti-lockdown one that I got caught up in someone had a woman had a sign saying my body my choice mm. and it, I, at first I was like you're at the wrong event <laughs> like I fully thought that was like a Sarah Everard yeah pro, like protest <laughs> sign yeah it was so jarring and I was talking to you about it afterwards and I was saying how I find it really hard to reconcile the fact that I'm pro my body, my choice in the feminist sense of reproductive freedom and um, just like bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I am particularly pro my body, my choice when it comes to COVID. Yeah. I think I, as much as I'm not, I hate the Conservative government and they've done a lot wrong, but the fundamental principle of enforcing behavioral norms and regulations in order to govern a public health crisis i I honestly think i am in favor of it so if you were to go strictly by the idea my body my choice you can't have it one way and have it the other right like if your body's your choice when you're want to get rid of your unborn child then like yeah that's your choice i completely agree with that but that also means that it should be your body your choice when you don't have a vaccine the difference is is that me having an abortion has no impact on other members of the community right but that but the fact that you have to qualify it like that sometimes these things can almost be helpful in kind of exposing that there are issues with these reductive statements that people rely on because they seem self-evident like people rely on my body my choice because it seems like a self-evident truth especially living in like a post second wave feminist world exactly but if you're going to rely on not having to argue your point then you can't be annoyed when people take those self-evident truths and use them for their own ends we hold these truths to be self-evident men all men are created equal animal farm all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others yeah and on that Orwellian note all bodies have choice but some bodies have more choice than others but that is true yeah so this is an issue of like public v private though like which but I think that distinction should be collapsed like you want people to be vaccinated not because you necessarily believe that it's the best option for yourself you believe that everyone or one believes that everyone should be vaccinated because it's the best thing for the community but not just the best thing for the community, the best thing for the community of which my body is a part and thus me. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you're doing it, you want people to be pro-vax because it's good for you as well. Yeah, for But like your abortion doesn't affect anyone. That's the distinction. I agree. Yeah. Okay, thanks for helping me reconcile that. No, absolutely no worries. Okay, um, I think we'll finish that. Is there anything else cool I want to say? <gasps> there is one, one last thing I want to say. This is a quote from Illich, medical nemesis. 
He who successfully claims power in an emergency suspends and can destroy rational evaluation. The insistence of the, on, of the physician on his exclusive capacity to evaluate and solve individual crises moves him symbolically into the neighbourhood of the White House. That is sick. Thanks. Okay. I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, I, I went pretty quote heavy. It threw me off. <laughs> no, I points, liked it. But I hope you guys like this pod because it was a bit more like well researched, I would say. Yeah, a bit um, more like um, debate rather than us but, mouthing off. But maybe you prefer us being funny. It's hard to be both. <laughs> yeah, women can't be funny anyways. <laughs> so true. <laughs> You're not going to get too much humour out of us. Scabby women. <laughs> But also, women aren't clever either, so... Oh yeah. What are we doing? Being men. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Cool. Cool. Oh. Bye, losers. Bye, losers. <laughs>